0: Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners a technique that is easily learnt and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynephimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Femister.
1: Well, hello and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me on this very special episode on Podcast Show. Tonight, my special guest is Dr. Richard Lawhern, otherwise known as Red Lawhern. He's a PhD and he's got a huge interest in the subject of the opioid crisis. So thank you, Red, for coming on tonight. Thank you very much for inviting me. So let's just go back in time. Where did you grow up and go to college? I grew up on the San Francisco Peninsula and
2: initially went to school at California State College University in San Luis Obispo. But uh, I entered the uh, U.S. Air Force uh, immediately after college, and they sent me on for additional degrees uh, right after officer training school and then four years later uh, I was sent back to UCLA for my doctorate. I was trained as a systems engineer and operations research analyst and basically as an information spook, if you want to call it that. So I was given uh, exposure to skills that I have since put uh, to work on behalf of people in chronic pain and chronic pain communities who are in need of authoritative information on the available treatments and the issues concerning these things that we've moved into the so called opioid crisis? I'm not an MD and I'm very careful not to represent an MD, but I think it could be said honestly that I am a reasonably credible subject matter expert in. Social media for chronic pain communities and public policy with regard to the treatment.
1: Exactly. So you've been involved with many different medical journals. You've written at the highest level and been involved with numerous experts and government agencies. Could you just like share with us just the most recent article you published in the editorial stat? And it's entitled Stop Persecuting Doctors for Legitimately prescribing opioids for chronic pain. So can you just tell us like an overview of that article first? I had two objectives with the article. I
2: did an extended editing process with gentlemen that edits all of the Stat News publishes. I should preface this by remarking that Stat News itself is a publication within Boston Globe group. It's one of the most widely read U.S. publications in healthcare, both from a perspective the substance of various crews in healthcare and the day-to-day business of the business of healthcare and of of the providers of healthcare and the various insurance issues that are involved in that. The article basically approaches two subjects. One is to get a better understanding of the issues that are involved in public policy with regard to the treatment of chronic pain using opioid analgesic therapies. And we're having a real battle down here, just as Canadians are having a battle with guidelines and with the severe misinterpretation of guidelines that essentially attempt to solve the opioid crisis that we have in public health by restricting the availability of prescription medications to people in pain. And it's turned out that when the CDC guidelines were published in 2016, they were almost immediately picked up as an excuse to vastly tighten the US regulation and later the Canadian regulation of opioid analgesic therapy, pain-relieving therapy. This was a misinterpretation of the guidelines, but it was nonetheless very widely done. There's over 30 U.S. states that now have legislation that in one way or another invades the doctor-patient relationship and regulates either the dose levels or the duration of opioids as they are commonly used in both acute and chronic pain. And it also turns out that the guidelines have essentially been repudiated by very major medical associations in the U.S. that represent over half of all practicing U.S. physicians and medical students. The CDC down here has published clarifications of the intention of their guideline. They basically are saying we were trying to help physicians in general practice rather than specialists in assessing the risks and benefits in common practice, and particularly with regard to new patients. But what in fact has happened, what I described in the article you referenced, is that the guidelines have been applied retroactively, and they've been picked up by drug enforcement agencies, notably our US DEA and its state counterparts. And they've been used as a basis for persecuting doctors, basically taking any evidence they can get that says maybe something's going on in a doctor's practice that represents diversion or overprescription or something of harm to patients, and raiding the doctor's office, sometimes by armed SWAT teams that intimidate not only the doctor, but the doctor's patients in place during the raid, and Seize medical records making it nearly impossible for patients to get assistance from other doctors who can't see their medical records for weeks or months. We have heard some reports in social media, deliberate intimidation of doctors' employees with the intention basically of saying to them, if you don't give us something on this doctor, we'll prosecute you. So this is what we call in legal terms, suborning witnesses. It is a deliberate intimidation tactic. And it's being used widely enough to cause some real problems down here. Since the guidelines came out in 2016, more than 20% of all U.S. pain managers have closed. And there are whole areas in U.S. states in which there is no pain management practice. And that's not just with general practitioners, that's with the specialists. Patients are being discharged without referral. Patients are being coerced to taper existing therapy programs. And doctors are being told, if you prescribe opioids, we'll find a way to get you. And that message may be phrased rather more subtly, but the message is very, very clear. DEA and its state little brothers are out to get doctors, and doctors are afraid of having their livelihoods denied to them and their licenses pulled on no grounds at all. So regardless of what people talk about in, in policy circles, doctors are leaving practice and they're deserting their patients in the process. Now that's the first major point I wanted to cover in the stat news article. There's one more I wanted to cover. We have, in the U.S. and in Canada, a mythology, and I want to be careful to to, to use that term because it is exactly what we're dealing with. The mythology is that the growing numbers of opioid overdose-related deaths in the U.S. and addiction in the U.S. is somehow the fault of big pharmaceutical companies and doctors who are over-prescribing to people in pain who then become addicted, who then go into street markets and get into trouble because street markets are not really regulated and they die of overdose in short periods of time. That narrative is what I like to call the poster boy theory of addiction. And it is provably wrong on both ethics and facts. And what I've done in the STAT article and in another article that's related to it is I've gone back into the CDC's, our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC published data on rates of prescribing and rates of opioid-related overdose deaths and demographics, basically age demographics. And when I put 20 years of that data together and started charting it, What I discovered is that there is no traceable relationship whatsoever between U.S. state by U.S. state prescribing rates by doctors and mortality rates that are attributed to opioids from all sources in those states. If you plot 50 states' data and D.C. on on the chart, what you get is a splatter pattern that looks like somebody shot a shotgun at a barn door. There are no trend lines in it. There is no clumping of the data in any regular pattern that shows an increase in in overdose rates with the increase in prescribing from state to state. And indeed, you see some really embarrassing things in that data, which are mentioned in the staff news article, which is eight out of nine of the states that have the highest rates of prescribing the rates of opioid overdose-related mortality are lower than the national average. And in a similar number of states that have the lowest rates of doctor prescribing, eight out of 10 of those states have rates of mortality that are significantly above the national average. So what we have here is evidence that the poster boy theory of over-prescribing, if you will, is not only wrong, it may be killing patients. Because these trend lines, to the very limited extent that they are trends, within a very, very wide splatter of data, they're showing us that there is an opioid problem in overdose and mortality, but it wasn't caused by prescription. And yet the entirety of U.S. policy on the control of prescription opioid medications is based on that mythology and the entire drug enforcement regime against doctors is based on the same mythology and I will go so far as to say that there are people who I would characterize as anti-opioid crazies who are going out of their way to totally ignore the lack of relationship because hard over and they're so convinced of their position that they've refused to look at the data. The article in Stat News is one of two recently that speak to this data. Another one is in the very well-respected online blog of Dr. Lynn Webster, who is former president of the American Academy of Pain Medicine. He is author and producer of a book and film that are titled The Painful Truth. He has well over 40 years experience in this field, and he was willing to give space, if I was very careful in the way it was referenced, to an article from which the STAT News article was to some degree derived. This is not the only place it need to appear. So I hope that adequately describes what I tried to do with the STAT article. So far, it's had over 15,000 downloads and more than 250 comments, well over half of them from patients who have actively been harmed by desertion. We also know from other sources that there are substantial numbers of patient suicides that are direct consequences of being discharged into withdrawal, of being rapidly tapered by doctors who really should know better. And basically put in the position of being told, well, we'll give you Tylenol for pain that would otherwise paralyze you and leave you bedridden. Tylenol doesn't work for people with that level of pain. And yet drug enforcement authorities are basically saying to doctors, that's what you have to do. You have to stop prescribing opioids to people in pain. So we can... Proceed from that basis, and where else you'd like
1: to. Okay, so you know these are obviously very alarming points that you're raising tonight. Raising tonight, I just like to say these are very concerning points that you're raising raising tonight. And my next question is, you know, what is actually happening to the physicians who the police are involved? These SWAT teams. Are they actually losing their license? Yes, some of them are. The number of doctors that actually
2: lose their license as a consequence of a court proceeding, the DEA has estimated it for a recent year, and I'm not sure which one it was, but it might have been 2017, as something on the order of 125 doctors who were actually sanctioned for misusing opioids. And, and of course, you're hearing numerous prep and uh, public media announcements of raids on doctors. That's a relatively small number, but what's being done here is that a tactic of intimidation is being used against all doctors. And there are multiple dimensions of that tactic, all of which, I might add, have been disavowed and repudiated by our American Medical Association. Attorneys general are sending what are called death letters, or they're sending high prescriber letters to doctors, and they're saying, you're among the top 10 or 20 or 100 physicians in this state who are prescribing opioids. You must therefore justify this level of prescription to us, or we will file action against you. Likewise, there are many more doctors who basically look at the published record and they say, hey, it doesn't matter whether I'm really doing anything wrong. If these people come after me and they publish their investigation months before it's affirmed for a court proceeding, my career is over, my practice is dead, my patients are gone, they're leaving practice. I see letters in social media that are basically pictures of letters that that, that patients have received or or notices they have seen in their doctor's offices that are saying, due to the regulations of the CDC, we will no longer be prescribing opioids to anyone for any reason after a date that's named. And that's despite the fact that the CDC guidelines don't say that. The doctors are basically jumping to the conclusion that they can be held to a standard by drug enforcement authorities that will ruin them, regardless of whether they're right or not. And that's happening broadly. I would say right now, and this is an estimate for an informed guess, I would guess that out of about 12,000 physicians who were licensed in 2016 to prescribe Scheduled opioids, that is to say, uh, opioids that are controlled under our in 2016. My guess is that not less than 2,000 of them have left their practice, relinquished their licenses to prescribe. That's something that the DEA hasn't published that I know of. I think they should, but I haven't seen it if it's
1: come out. So we've talked about the problems. What are your ideas on the solutions for this? What I'm working hard with other
2: advocates to make happen is I want to see legislation introduced, co-sponsored, and passed this year, if at all possible, which will explicitly change the public policy with regard to the prescription and oversight of opioids in medical practice. And the changes I am interested in seeing happen basically are to repeal the 2016 CDC guideline, to repeal a closely related document that is called the Opioid Safety Initiative that is drives practice standards among our Veterans Administration hospitals, and to establish as public policy that no doctor will be sanctioned persecuted, or even investigated solely on the basis of reports that he or she is at levels above those that are mentioned as grounds for a safety review in the CDC guidelines. Now, it's obvious that doctors want definitive guidance on what the standards really are for practicing with the uses of opioids. And in order to do that, we're probably going to need some kind of a guideline, but the CDC is not the right one to write it. They never were. They never had a mission to do that under legislation. They simply invented one out of thin air. The right agencies to do this are probably going to be an interagency task force that is chaired, by, I'm trying to think of the exact name of the office, but there's an office in the National Institutes of Health that is specific to the development of guidelines on opioid policy. And there are experts, there's quite a large body of expertise in our Food and Drug Administration. Those would be two big ones. And the third major participant in this, in this uh, beyond the other agencies, would be our National Institutes on Drug Abuse. They now know, and they now have enough information grounded on a recent task force that has been reported out from on pain management best practices. They now know that the general directions in which practice standards for the management of pain should be going in, and they're very different from the directions that have prevailed in the last three years. The HHS Task Force, that's the Department of Health and Human Services Task Force, which I supported in public addresses and extensive comments, has published a patient-centered overview of the practices in pain management that really should. And that practice is basically individualized care that is monitored and and established by a team of practitioners with medical doctors of several types represented and therapists in other fields that are closely aligned to medicine, notably massage, acupuncture. Some people do consider acupuncture to be medicine. I realize that, but it's it's not necessarily always treated that way in, in literature. And basically, the task force laid out a a policy of patient-centered care that says each patient is different. Some patients need very large doses of opioids when they're called for. Some patients may not be good candidates for opioids because they don't respond well to them or they have side effects that are are inappropriate for the the care of these people. Some people do fairly well on moderate pain uh, when they're treated with Tylenol or ibuprofen with care because both of those medications are dangerous when they're overused. Some patients do fairly well with programs that combine, for instance, antidepressants. There's a class of antidepressant medications that are called tricyclic that are sometimes used in neuropathy, often attempted at least in neuralgia and facial pain. I have a lot of history in meeting with patients in that field. And likewise, we have anti-seizure medications that are used off-label under a doctor's judgment that have a good history of assisting system, various kinds of convulsive pain disorders. Right neuralgia is not the only one by any means. So we have the general there, and what we need to do nationally is to force the DEA to back the heck off And to get doctors re-engaged with a centered individualized care standard. And that is possible, but the momentum is so strong in the direction of regulatory overreach and persecution that the only way we're going to get that kind of outcome and the return of doctors to pain managers practice is by national legislation that establishes clear and unequivocal policy. I have written a model legislation for this. It's on a website that is called face factsorg slash law, with the L capital R's. And the model legislation is right at the top of that rather lengthy page. It has an lot of publications in it that I have done over the past eight years.
1: You know, I'm really glad that we've... Being able to air the, the major issues around this subject, but also more importantly, I think, is where do we go forward to look at solutions and to bring the powers that be who are involved at that level in, so we can literally redirect this furthering crisis that is, is just going on despite the reduction in opioid prescribing, as you stated today, and also as I've read in, in other sources. And I just want to reiterate that for the audience, you know, the website that was mentioned at the back was www.face-facts.org backdash capital L. Or for Law Hearn, that's uh, read Law here tonight. Law is the, the last um, aspect of that. And
2: I dimension mention uh, this uh, issue, for you, if I may, we have to realize that there. There genuinely is an opioid crisis in the United States and in Canada, but we have to assign the correct causes to that crisis as well as to the one that that the chronic pain patients are facing. If overprescribing is a mythology, there is an underlying reality that is truly complex and that we understand what we need to do about, but so far we haven't had the political will to pull it all together. Opioid addiction and mortality are real and they are real for probably on the order of a million to two million people, but they are not created by medical exposure for the most part. There is a small subset of all people who have a malformed gene that's called A118G that governs the expression of the new receptors in the brain that create euphoria exposed to opioids, even on fairly short exposures. That uh, flawed gene exists in about a half of 1% of all patients, of all people, period. And it means that there is a vulnerability for these people. The fascinating thing here is that we get strong indications from the National Institutes on Drug Abuse that for most patients, most of the time, opioids are not going to be an issue when they're medically prescribed and used as direct. We have some very large studies on that that are very conclusive and I can provide the research, the uh, references to you if you want to publish them. But what do we do with addicts? And why, are, why do they become addicts? The major sources of addiction and mortality these days are socioeconomic, and they're complicated. There's no one-size-fits-all solution for that, but here are the elements of it that need to be looked at. We have to start realizing that hopelessness and despair are major drivers of depression, and through depression, they are major drivers of addiction. In large numbers of people, and where do hopelessness and despair come from? To a great degree, they come from income and wealth inequality, and stagnation of wages, and employment throughout the Rust Belt of the United States and the far west rural states of the United States. To a great degree in Canada as well, and they are a consequence of the fact that families are struggling to stay together and they're often disintegrating communities are disintegrating and they're disintegrating because our infrastructure is dying in front of our very eyes and we haven't to create investor of employment for people who do not have highly educated skills this is a major social problem it is one that will involve levels of far higher than any government is presently offering, and it will have these dimensions. We have to do harm reduction for people who are already addicted, and that mostly means we have to make programs of medication-assisted therapy available for people who are willing to engage and want to get off the wagon, if you will, with the, the horrors of addiction. We have to do job retraining, We have to build safe and sober housing. We have to educate kids starting in fourth grade and continue that all the way through college. And it has to be education in a manner that is a great deal more complex than just say no, which was Nancy Regan's favorite description for it. We have to help people find empowerment because without it, they cannot function, they cannot live lives uh, that are productive and centered and able to support their kids. And we have to help kids. Now, there's another element there that needs to be looked at very carefully. This is one that has a great deal of controversy in it and that many people of conservative leanings regard as utter horror, but we have the evidence. In Portugal, possession has been uh, legalized, and when it was legalized, and since that time, the number of drug overdose-related deaths has dropped to near zero. And the number of new cases of addiction has reduced in substantial numbers. It's not by any means zero yet, but it is certainly dropping. In other countries that have legalized drugs in one degree or another, we see the same trends. But in the Puritan United States, that policy of stopping the criminalization of drugs is absolute anathema. It's like the Puritans are in, are in charge of the policy shop. And the Puritans basically are labeling drug addiction as a weakness of character that should be punished. We have the highest prison population in the United States of any country in the world. We have more people in prison here than the Soviet Union does, ex-Soviet Union, now Russia. And a large number of them are in prison for two reasons. Either they are guilty of a nonviolent drug-related offense or their behavior is so bizarre that their relatives and neighbors decided they had to be locked up and called somebody and they got into trouble with the law because they were assaultive or confrontive or in some manner strange and bizarre. A large part of our prison population right now is mentally ill. And they don't belong in the prison system at all. So those are factors that are surrounding the pain crisis that I've been talking about primarily. And by the way, it's also getting more things out of the way as far as something that's needed. The present administration in the US has allocated something on the order of, I'm going to guess, around $9 billion over five years for all, all drug related investment type programs. And a lot of it's misdirected. And it's much, much too small because we're going to have to reinvest in the infrastructure and the creation of stable jobs if you want to see the number of people who get addicted dropping. So that's kind of the other side of this crisis. We've got two largely disjoint populations. People who are prescribed opioids are almost never addicted. And that's a very strong statement, but there's a lot of statistics behind it. And let me, let me illustrate that for you, if I may. Let's look at the demographics. And this, again, is something that's mentioned in my stat. The typical new user and abuser of an opioid is a male under the age of 25. The typical new chronic pain patient is a female over the age of 45, and that's by a factor of 2 to 1 among, excuse me, it's a factor of 60, of 60-40. Females much more often get chronic pain conditions than males. Another interesting statistic, rates of opioid prescribing for young people and young adults under age 45 are one-third Of those for seniors over the age of 55. But the rates of opioid overdose related deaths among young people and young adults are six times higher than seniors. Now, we should expect that if opioid prescribing was a major source of addiction and mortality, that the people who are prescribed most often would be the people who are dying, and they aren't. They are not dying more often, except now some of them are dying from neglect and depression and suicide. When you get into the details of opioid prescription in the CDC databases and you look at certain states that have been measured, too, North Carolina and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts are alone. The number of people who die of a prescription opioid related cause is something on the order of 20% or less of all drug related deaths. And by drug related, I include mortality that's caused by Tylenol and ibuprofen and Benadryl and gosh knows how many other toxic agents. Last year, it was about 70 some odd thousand people died from all drug sources but only 17,000 of those people actually had a prescription opioid in their bloodstream. But here's the interesting little wrinkle. In that 17,000, almost all of those who had one prescription type med in their system had multiple other medications and alcohol in their systems. Now guess what that really means? It means that a lot of those people either suicided accidentally overdosed on street drugs when their doctors wouldn't prescribe adequate treatment for them using opioids that were medically prescribed. What we are seeing very clearly is that U.S. national policy on drug control and on prescription drugs is profoundly and fatally misdirected. You mentioned something earlier in the sense of what can be done to try to change the corporate mind on these things. Let me give you a couple of examples. Send out news notes to well over 450 healthcare legislative assistants in our U.S. House and Senate. Don't do it every day. If I did, they would certainly never read anything i write. But I do it frequently. And I do it also by following and several others are doing it by follow-up, and by that I mean if we get somebody who succeeds in getting the attention of a senator or a congressperson, congressman, congresswoman, and says, I want to talk to you, legislator, about problems I'm having as a pain patient. We will prepare materials for that person to present to their legislator, or their governor, or their state legislator, and to leave behind. We will help them to prepare for a short presentation given to their legislators, either in person or on the phone. And by we, I mean myself and a group of about 400 medical professionals, knowledgeable pain patients, caregivers, and, Basically, helpers of various types. The Open Information Collaborative Network, it's called the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain. And we do an awful lot of work helping people to prepare to talk to their legislators. We're actively trying to get one piece of legislation outright killed this summer if we can. Already had interactions with staffers. And we're trying to get somebody from the patient community up in front of Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee because the gentleman who is chairman of that committee has promised publicly that he will schedule hearings to hear from chronic pain patients who are being affected deeply by the restriction on opioid prescribing. And we get a number of people to do that. There's already been one such hearing last February. So as for what's changing, the message that we offer and that we want to have offered respectfully, but nonetheless with some, let us say, fervor, is, Mr. Legislator, there are 20 to 40 million people in the United States who suffer from high-impact pain. Of those about prescribed opioids in any given year, that will be used longer than 90 days. That figure is probably a little higher now because that one dates from 2016. This is a voting constituency, and it is increasingly a very polarized one that thinks you personally are doing a lousy job. If you want to be reelected, you better listen up, mother. And obviously, it's going to be put in terms a little more polite than that. But we're encouraging people to call their governor's office, to call their state medical board, to call their personal assembly person or state senate person, to call the healthcare legislative aide or policy assistant or regional assistant of their senators and their congressional representatives. And basically, in a focused way, to say, I'm your constituent, I'm a chronic pain patient who has been deserted by my doctor because of policy that you are a cause of, and I want you to fix the mess you've made, and I want it done this year, not next year, not five years from now, I want it done now. You can hear the tone of voice I'm using. I usually tone that back just a hair when I'm talking to a legislative staffer that's on the telephone
1: somewhere. Do we have other places you'd like to go with us? Well, I think maybe for another night. I think um, we've covered a lot of ground, and I think you're at a critical point down there in the States that I really hope that, you know, there's a turning of the tide where people actually get help. Because at the end of the day, we're all in this to help people, to stop unnecessary suffering deaths and just the path that they're finding themselves in for no fault of their own. And like many things over the history of medicine, you know, it's taken a bit of polar shifts in mindsets to master problems that are huge, like the simple introduction of washing hands, for example. You know, and this is, I see a very similar situation, you know, the, the answers are there and we just need to have enough people on board to change this tide. And, you know, personally, I'd just like to thank you, Red, for your commitment over the years to this work. I know you've had personal experience and family members who've gone through this, and it's very close to your heart as well as to the millions of people out there across your country and across the world who are in this situation. And and I really hope that you can help these colleagues and um, sufferers of chronic pain. So we're going to wrap this up tonight. Um, you already answered the question, is there any more that you would like to share? And I think you did a, a wonderful, masterful job in that. And I'd just like to leave your name because I think your name is associated with so many different resources on Facebook, social media platforms, and that's just Red or his, you know, Richard for his first name and Lawhern.
2: L-A-W-H-E-R-N. Easy to find on Google. I'm easy to find on Facebook. On Facebook, it's Lawhern. Page is public. You can come there and read there. And you, you don't have to be my Facebook friend to read there. If you want to comment there, you'll need to be my Facebook friend. And I have
1: about 5,000 of those now. Mm. <laughs> so yes, indeed. I'll be very happy for anyone. So listen, thank you again Red, I really appreciate your expertise and your commitment, your passion, and your big heart for this subject matter. And it's been a privilege to get to know you a little bit and to hear what you've got to say and to spread this word on the podcast show here at 21st Century Pain Solutions. So thank you so much. And I look forward to the next conversation we'll have down the path.
2: Thank you, Wayne.
1: Have a good evening.